Well, good morning, everybody. We're just kind of mornings today. How tired are you on a scale of 1 to 10? 10 being really tired, 11, I like that, yes, yes. I, hibernation, that, this is the most epic level uh, of tired. So, well, awesome, guys. We're going to be jumping in again to our uh, series on Genesis. The objective uh, through this leg of the series has been uh, and is to talk about the, um, the disorder that man has caused to God's order. Um, God created our world with a particular order in mind, and, and we failed that, right? We failed that order by, by going it our own way, and we're going to talk uh, in depth about that uh, today, or we're going to talk uh, in depth about this, this concept. It's going to bring up a lot of other questions, I think, uh, for you. Uh, last week, I told you that we would be talking this week about archetypes, we're, we're going to hit that. An archetype is simply um, the way in which something represents all things or represents a whole group of things. And so uh, we'll be looking at Adam and Eve and a representation of mankind. We'll also be looking at King Jesus and a representation of what we're supposed to be. Um, that That will lead us into ideas about Jesus being the second Adam and what that really is. Um, and so to be doing while we do that is is we're going to be seeing uh, who is supposed to be head over all, which is God, and then who becomes head over all, which is us, right? We're, we make ourselves head over things. It doesn't mean we're, we're going to uh, last in that position. As a matter of fact, uh, we don't last in that position, but the objective is to see ourselves in, in a right way. Um, I want to remind you before we jump into this of kind of the um, hermeneutical process. Doesn't that sound like a fun concept? It's simply an interpretive process. It's just a fancy word for people, right? But I want to talk to you about a hermeneutical process of seeing the Bible as an authority. Because as I've shared with you for years, I harped on it uh, uh, not too long ago in a series about seven things I wish Christians knew about their body. Um, and then throughout this Genesis series are, are what we mean by the Bible having authority. And there's a lot of nuance in the Bible having authority. Uh, the first thing that I want you to see is that God's purpose, which was to communicate a story and a truth and his way to us, uh, God's purpose is carried out through human purpose. And that's a very interesting way to, to think about this. Uh, but what I mean by that is that um, God has given people a particular purpose in their life. We know that Abraham, uh, being a father of the Jewish nation, has a purpose. We see Joseph in the story, that he has a purpose to save uh, you know, many alive. We, we have all of these different purposes that people have. And inside of those purposes, God is communicating a very important truth, okay? So, so God's communication, God's truth is coming through human purpose. Authority in the Bible is vested in the author, not the author being God. God didn't sit down and pen the Bible. 
Um, but God inspires authors. He, he gives authority to authors. And those authors are writing down, within the purpose of their life, they're writing down uh, things that God wants us to understand. That being said, the Bible is directed at a particular audience because those authors had a purpose in life, okay? So Moses' purpose is to write to a certain group of people that have been led out of captivity, right? But God is speaking a bigger truth in that. So he speaks to them, and then we glean from it. So we have what we would call a transcendent truth. Uh, this is why we say the phrase, or I say the phrase a lot. This is not my own phrase, but that the Bible is for us. It's just not written to us, right? We know that Moses wrote to a specific group of people, and they gained something from the text of Scripture, and we often get to look at the Scripture in all of its beauty and see how God was faithful, and we take that into our life in walking after God. So the message uh, of the Bible uh, transcends culture, right, to our culture, but it is cultural bound in its formation. What does Nathan mean by culturally bound in its formation? Um, the, the book of Genesis is not a science book because it's culturally bound to the time that it was in. Nobody's asking the question, is it seven literal days in Moses' time? Nobody cares. Nobody's asking the question, did we come from something other? Were there more people on the planet? Is this, are Adam and Eve truly the progenitors of all the human race? Nobody's asking the question because that's not what's going on. That's not the culturally bound reality for this text. And when we get off of that and we make the Bible say a lot of obscure things that the authors never intended, and then we attach a very absurd view of authority to the Bible and say, my interpretation is God's word, we come to all kinds of problems. We come to all kinds of problems because we're literally fighting, and here's why we fight so passionately. We're fighting over the interpretation of the Bible that we present as if it's so sacred that God wants us to defend it. And in the end, it turns out, it's probably just your interpretation. But there is a culturally bound idea that God has written because God's purpose of communicating the story was carried out through human purpose, right? And so it's culturally bound. And there's an idea that we have to get back to understand. So we have to take our place in God's audience, who God wanted to talk to. So if you were hearing the first five books of the Bible, you should try to put yourself into the seat of a delivered, once captive Israel. That's what you should see. Not 21st century Americans that have all kinds of weird ideas and we keep reading them back into the text. And then proving our own little theories, sitting in our little holy huddles and acting like because we think we've got it right, we're better than other people. <laughs> I hope you caught all that because if you didn't, you'll have to play it back on the tape. But the, the important thing is authority means something far greater than what we uh, take it to be, okay? So with that said, we're going to jump into this. I told you last week that God created the world with order and that we brought disorder in our way of doing things, whether the, you know, uh, in many ways. So we'll, we'll talk about that. But here's what 
want you to know, know about order. It is the highest value, or if not the, one of the highest values within the ancient world. Order is of high value. And wisdom, according to ancient Near Eastern ideas, wisdom is required to establish order, okay? So what does God do in, in his ordering process? He creates the world and he orders a specific area. He orders the garden. And he tells Adam he's to tend and keep it. And then he's also to name these animals. And as Adam is doing this job, Adam recognizes he needs something. How many of you remember that the Bible says that everything is good until it gets to Adam alone? All you women better say amen, right? <laughs> right? It's not good with Adam alone. The good comes when, when there is a suitable correspondent pair or partner for Adam. There is a right order, if you will. Okay? And so God creates this, this kind of ordered process and he makes man and woman. And then he commissions man and woman to be uh, co-laborers with him. You notice that the world needs to be subdued. Why would the world need to be subdued? Can't God just make really cool gardens everywhere and everything's good? Well, he could, but he didn't. And so he's called us to be a part of that. What then is he calling us to participate in? Ordering the world. If order is important in the ancient Near East, and it is, and wisdom is required to make that order, we have a real interesting situation in front of us. And that situation is we trust God for order or we go our own way. Right? We trust God for order or we go, we don't like your plan and I'll do it my way. How many of you have gone your own way even this week? Yeah, thank you, James. I'm glad your honesty is there. Yep, we've gone our own way. And I'm not talking about you just chose to turn left on 275 or something. I'm talking about you were like, I know what God says, but I'm not doing it, right? I'll tell you one way that, uh, that happens a lot. We just got back from a, a bit of a retreat with some of the guy leaders in the church. And it was really a fun time. And one of the ways that I keep seeing a particular person go astray is uh, Dwayne, when he keeps giving people the holy flip-off. No, <laughs> I'm teasing you completely. Anyway, there's this, there's this funny joke that we have where, where Dwayne is trying to get himself to a place where traffic doesn't bother him. So what he does is he tries to blow it off, right? He tries to just blow off that steam. But when he told us this story, he told it with a hand gesture. And he went, and Adam decided to call that the holy flip-off. And so now Dwayne is trying to shake it, and I understand why he's trying to shake it. But, right, we, we have an order and we go our own way. And all of us do it. We do it day in and day out, right? So God creates image bearers. He, helps, he wants us to help create order, to establish order. And for Adam and Eve to partake of the tree that they partook of, remember, it's in the center of the garden, we've got all this amazing temple imagery, they are partaking of, the reason why it was so beautiful, I think, to their eyes, was this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This literally is the wisdom tree, right? So we're going to participate in God's ordering process. We need wisdom, 
God wants to disseminate that wisdom to them as they learn, because Adam was and Eve, lifelong learners. They're, they're discovering this stuff as they go, and God wants it that way. But what, they, what do they do? They take it. They usurp the whole thing, right? So they go in and they take of the wisdom tree. They don't trust God. So this is back to the point that we are not thrown into chaos because somebody ate an apple, right? Just because of some obscure, odd rule where God is just being a, you know, a cosmic bully or something, right? He, he has told them, I want you to go my way and I don't in this, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which would be them going the other way. But they love it. And the scripture actually says that the devil's interesting uh, uh, line or the serpents is, well, you're not going to surely die. You will be like God. God knows that you'll be like him. Okay, And we've confirmed that that's actually true because God himself in his divine counsel later in Genesis says they have become like one of us. So now we're going to hide the tree from them. We're going to make it to where they can't find the tree of life because why? Because if they partake of the tree of life now, they are going to be eternal, because we're not eternal, we're made with a capacity for eternity. They would partake of the tree of life, and they would live forever in what process? In a process of them ordering their own life and future. Which, by the way, guys, is what real sin is. It is missing a mark so much that we do things our way and not God's way. And in just a bit, we're going to talk about how repentance plays into this story, okay? So I, I told you guys at the beginning that we're going to talk about these archetypes and, and we're going to talk about how Adam and Eve are literal people, but they also serve as this archetype of, of, of a lot of other things. This whole story is an archetype for how our lives play out. I asked you the question, how many of you went your own way this week? Why? Because this is just true of who we are. We keep going our own way, right? We understand this from uh, right after Adam and Eve, we've got Cain and Abel. Cain has the opportunity to do what? To not sin. I know this is hard for some people to understand, probably because you've been taught some hooey, but uh, uh, Cain has the ability to not kill his brother. So let me talk to all the young people in here. You have the ability to not kill your brother. He's not going to look at me, Steph, so it's, it's okay. But anyway, Gabriel, God is speaking to you. No, I mean, it's Nathan. You don't have to kill your own brother. Anyway, okay. So, so you have Cain who doesn't have to do this. What does Cain do? Chooses his own way, doesn't he? And there goes his brother. What happens shortly after this? The world goes into disorder and chaos because it doesn't want anything to do with God. And then we have this character called Noah who is a preacher of righteousness. What is a preacher of righteousness? It's literally a person bringing good news. And the good news, just like the Great Commission, is that God has an order that's better than yours. And he invites you to follow it. And Noah does this. And he preaches this order. And everybody goes, no, we don't want that. And so God floods the planet, right? And 
So he has a justice. Shortly after that, we have another example of this archetype idea that keeps flowing through human history. We see this in the Tower of Babel or Babel. I don't care how you say it, right? But with this tower, it's amazing when you think about what's actually going on in this story. You know that the scripture says that that the people were of one language and they were building a tower to the heavens. And the scripture says that there was this, there's this problem with it. God identifies the problem with it. And that was they wanted to make a name for themselves. Do we, do we understand what the problem in Babel is? Because, because what God does seems terribly unfair. God comes, he sees a people working together in unity. He sees a people who have one language. He sees a people who are constructing this structure, right? And and he looks at it and goes, nope, don't like it. Cosmic Karen, cosmic party pooper, presses the button and blows it all up, right? No offense to Karen, okay, right? So it's, it's, it's amazing what happens, right? Blows the whole thing up. Why does God do that? Well, we got to understand what's actually happening at, at Babel. What's happening in this story, which is yet again a repeat of this archetype, is that people have come together and they have come together in their own way and not God's way and they've built a tower. This isn't the first skyscraper church. This is what is called in ancient Near Eastern language, this is called a ziggurat. This is a temple. That's what they're doing. And what stands at the heart, the image of this temple Man's own way. God is not just going, man, I, I hate how productive you people are. Right? He, he, that's fine if you're productive his way. But God does for Babel the same thing that he does for Adam and Eve. And that is the second they start to go their own way, he stops them before they are unstoppable life or unstoppable he stops them before this is because it's a very clear act of mercy we just don't see it from our end we just go why are you why are you doing this lord why you got to crush everything i set out to do and he's going well it's because you do stupid things nathan <laughs> right and you're getting it backwards and there is a problem so God creates image bearers. Those image bearers are there to help him create order. He's commissioned them for this. They instead go their own way, and that story repeats throughout everything. Now, what I find fascinating is that God calls everything, he declares everything good, right? He says, it's good that I've created the heavens and the earth. It's good that I've created the sun, the moon, and the stars, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field. It's all good. And only when Eve shows up does God say everything is very good, right? That's awesome. Okay, so Eve entering the picture. Now we've got everything very good. There's another point in the story where we hear something declared to be good, but it doesn't come from God. Who does it come from? It comes from Eve, and what is she declaring to be good? That fruit. She says, it looks good, right? Why? Because it does look good to go your own way. It does look good. We do a lot of things that seem right in our own eyes. But what is the end? Destruction, according to the Bible. 
We see it, it looks good. It looks good for wisdom, it looks good for ideas, it looks good for what we can accomplish, but it's wrong. And it's not wrong because of just a weird arbitrary rule in a book somewhere. It's wrong because you're saying, God, I don't want your order. I want my own order. So we're, we're always repeating this idea. And so, again, this example is archetypal. It, it just keeps going throughout all of human history. Like the examples of, uh, above, like the examples of, of Babel and, and all these other things, what is understood as good and using it or not using it as God desires, is vital. What is good is God's order. What is bad is disorder, okay? Now, here's a very practical reality. This is why there are issues in the Bible. This is why there is a a code of thou shalt nots in the Bible against certain things. For example, if you want to talk about covetousness, that is a no-no because the order that breaks down is this order of contentment that God provides all for me. He provides everything I need. Did you know that God provides everything you need? There's never a point in which he doesn't. There's a point in which he provides for you what you need and you get mad because there's things you want, (laughs) right? But that's not the same thing. This is why we have, uh, we have declarations in the scripture about sexuality and about uh, participating in certain acts uh, under a covenant, right? Why is it such a problem to have sex outside of marriage or to, to reverse the order of these things? Why is that such a problem? Well, there's a million ramifications that might occur. But understand that God's issue is you just moved his order. You keep thinking you can do it your own way, and those consequences are going to be hard. Consequences for Adam were hard. They're going to continue to be hard. Why is it that the Bible talks about a sexual ethic that exists only between man and woman? Why? Because there's only one order in which babies show up. And just because humanity keeps creating new ways to do it so that we actually don't need things like that, it doesn't mean God's order changed. Just because we created workarounds doesn't mean anything, right? Like, check this out. I'm driving down the road, and I have to confess, here's what I like to do. I like to go fast. And it is of my personal opinion that all the speed limits are wrong. Okay, it's just my personal opinion. It's also of my opinion that if you stay in the left lane not passing somebody, you should be killed. (laughs) Anyway, so I like to drive. Did you say preach? Oh, I get a bad rap just because I'm a preacher. (laughs) Anyway, this is, I love this. I love this. We got the female version is Karen. The male version is preacher. Anyway, okay, so, so I, I hate that. I like to drive whatever speed I do. And so what do I do? I create a workaround so I don't get busted. You know what that workaround is? I will use my GPS when I don't need to use my GPS because my phone tells me that there's speed traps ahead because other people are cheating just like me, okay? I create a workaround. It's wonderful stuff. It's amazing. It's still not right, still not right. This is what we do with God. 
create all these workarounds. We do it with sex, we do it with marriage, we do it with order in every way, okay? So in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, there are consequences, and I'm saying that intentionally, there are consequences to our actions, and this archetype continues to flow. But turn with me there, Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to look at verses 14 through 19. Genesis chapter 3, starting at verse 14, and we're going to go through 19. And you've heard me share this before, okay? We've done this a couple of, couple of weeks in a row. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. And you shall bruise his, uh, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I'll take a brief time out here just to share with you uh, the varying opinions on this. You do know that we have established an idea here of a, of a uh, pre-Christ figure prophetic utterance here. That the serpent is going to be crushed by our Savior, and our Savior is going to slam his heel down on that serpent. And that was made even more famous by Mr. Mel Gibson in his passion, right? Okay, and so is there truth in that? Of course, Jesus is going to crush the serpent. But here's the challenge. There are a lot of people who don't see anything of the sort inside of that text. For example, John Walton sees Genesis 3.15 as merely antagonistic language between the serpent and man, just between a living creature and man. And you look at this and you go, that's just, he just doesn't get it. Actually, he gets a lot of things. The verbs for attack here are actually the same, right? So bite you on the heel and crush you, whatever. It's the same verb. And what's interesting is there's no indication of who's the victor. Why would you not write that in? Why would you not change the verb to the one who is implied to be the victor? So the idea is that this has nothing to do with a Messiah. Now that's hard for some because you've been raised hearing it otherwise. But uh, this idea that this is not a a messianic prophecy is is interesting. And you you know who else never references this as a messianic prophecy? No one else in the Bible. That's who doesn't reference it as a messianic prophecy. Not once. It's not in the Bible. This is just the way they wrote it, okay? And so there are other views, by the way, of people who can look at you and say, I don't think the serpent was anything more than a creature, and there will be enmity. Just something, food for thought, guys, to think about. Okay, so we notice in 14 through 15, this issue with the serpent. Verse 16 goes on and it says, to the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. I'm going to really uh, maybe blow uh, some stuff up in that, in that passage today, but it's really important. Okay, so to the woman he said, Now we keep going to Adam. Then to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. 
till you return to the ground because from it you were taken. For you, I love this, you are dust, remember, and to dust you shall return. Here's what's really important about this. Do you notice that the serpent is the only one cursed? Do you notice that? The language does not say Adam is cursed. The language does not say Eve is cursed. The language says the ground is cursed. The language says that Eve is going to deal with a greater sense of pain in childbearing. What's that about, right? This is interesting because what we're seeing here for mankind are the consequences of actions, right? But this is not some sort of penalty, and that is a weird fine line, okay? And so I would have to spend probably another sermon just trying to articulate that meaning. So let's analyze this for a second. These are not curses towards people. This is a curse towards the serpent. He's cursed. And it's a curse of the ground and pain in childbearing. What does this actually mean for Eve? So what is childbearing? The word is heron. And the word means conception. Conception. It actually means pregnancy, not having a baby. Why is that important for this idea? Because last I checked, there wasn't any pain in conception. But yes, there is. There's much pain in conception, and we're not talking about little bitty kicks or little bitty movements or stretches or whatever, all the stuff that comes with it. There's a greater level of pain that comes in conception. And if you think about it in their world, it was even higher than it is for us. And that great pain in conception is anxiety. It's an anxiety. And what is the anxiety? It's the fear of losing the very thing that you were made to create so that you could bring order to the world. Isn't that fascinating? You women were supposed to be this part in this great team and they had a responsibility. But the problem is they have this anxiety now. It's clear. It could be lose the baby. It could be not, uh, you know, not producing what God is calling you to do. It could be that you lose your own life in childbearing, right? It could be that you lose your value entirely. Now, why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because I have wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with Genesis 3, trying to understand why when Genesis 1 and 2 don't speak one iota about hierarchy, why is it there's an interjection here about this? You can read Genesis 1. You can read Genesis 2. You are not going to come away with, ah, the man is the head of the household. You're not going to come away from that with Genesis 1 and 2. So why is it that all of a sudden in Genesis 3 we have this idea of multiplication and pain and childbearing and then this, this statement, he will rule over you. What is happening here? And I've explained it a thousand different ways. I've seen it a bunch of different ways, right? And so I'm like, I don't know, it's kind of making sense this way. It's kind of making sense this way. Think about this in the context that I'm providing for you. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your anxiety, your pain in conception. 
in pain, right? In anxiety, you will bring forth children. There's a promise that we will reproduce, okay? Yet your desire will be for your husband. Does that make any sense to you in English? Does that make any sense? Yet your desire will be for your husband? Think, just think about the words. In pain you will bring forth children, yet your desire will be for your husband. Seems ADD at best, doesn't it? Yes, because what, what Eve is dealing with is a great anxiety, and the desire for her husband is a desire for one to do what he was ordered to do, which is to comfort her in her anxiety to comfort her and be beside her. This is not set men and women apart from each other and make them fight. Because again, when it comes to he will rule over you, the word for rule is very rarely, if ever, used in the negative. This is not Adam going, who's boss? That's not what's happening. That's not what's happening at all. This is benevolence. This is the same way God condescends by coming down to earth and dying on a cross so that we might have life. And what have we done with it? Adam pounds his chest and says, go make me a sandwich. Not what we're reading. So now we have Eve having this great level of anxiety and yet you have Adam to be able to come to her and actually, uh, actually comfort her. She needs that comfort. She desires her husband and he leads her. He benevolently cares for her in this. It would be really odd to just shoot this out of nowhere and all of a sudden we're just like, here we go. Now let's just create problems. It doesn't make sense. doesn't make sense. So she might lose a child, but Eve is going to seek order in the midst of that anxiety, and so she seeks her husband because that is God's order. Just because there's a consequence of greater anxiety doesn't mean God leaves us orderless. Do you know that? This is also why he curses the serpent, but he doesn't curse us. Curses other things. These are really, really important ideas. What about Adam's rule over in this, right? The term, again, almost never in the negative in Hebrew. And it is used, uh, and it is uh, so that it makes sense of, of what's happening here is that Adam is going to come beside her, that team is going to be reunited, and it's going to be pushed forward, okay? So Adam is doing his part. Now, Adam's issue is that Adam is going to toil, okay? This is interesting because, yet again, we're going to have some anxiety language. Toil, this word for toil, is the bond. Uh, I believe I'm saying that right. It only appears three times in the scripture. It appears these two times for Adam and Eve, and it appears one time for uh, Noah, just in a little bit, right? Adam is going to eat in toil. What is that also? Sorrow. What is that also? Anxiety. He's going to eat in this place where he's afraid and he doesn't understand what's happening. Eve is going to toil or increase toil, increase anxiety in conception. Noah was said to be a savior from toil. 
He's going to save people from anxiety. What was the anxiety about? A sick, twisted, fallen, broken world. He's going to save them out. And it's also going to be saving them from an anxiety of a giant flood, right? That's important. What happens later in this archetype concept? What happens later with Jesus when he comes to us? He oddly enough says, cast your anxieties on me, for I care for you. Do you know what happens when you live in disorder? You live in anxiety. Do you know this? Do you know this? How many of you haven't balanced your checkbook in a while? I'm being honest. Raise your hand. Does that not create anxiety? Because there's no, no. (laughs) She's like, no, I don't have any money to balance it anyways. Right? (laughs) Right? So, So it's interesting. When you don't know, sometimes we think ignorance is bliss. Ignorance is bliss until the bank calls and says, you owe them more money because you overdrafted something, right? Anxiety comes with disorder. And God's plan this whole time is to bring us back into order, therefore back into perfect peace, therefore walking with our King and our Savior. Is that encouraging to you? Because when you understand that you now get to look at the whole of scripture and you go okay that's completely different this is not what I feel that I have been told so toil only occurs three times anxiety and sorrow Adam is going to eat in toil Eve is going to conceive in toil Noah is a type of Christ that is going to save from toil and Jesus literally says cast your anxieties on me for I care for you Now, there is another consequence, though, and that consequence kind of sucks. That consequence is death. That's a fun one, okay? So what does the scripture say if we eat of this uh, this tree and we go our own way? In that day, you will surely die. In that day, you will surely die. First of all, day there, if people knew Hebrew better, we would never ask the question, uh, why, why did they not die that moment? The word is actually uh, a, a term that is used for age. In that age, in that time, in that specific period, you will surely die. You will surely die is, we have the use of an absolute infinitive. This is interesting, geeky language, but absolute infinitive. We don't have anything in English that quite represents this, right? So an absolute infinitive. Um, And and when you have this, um, what happens with an absolute infinitive plus a finite verb, in this case, uh, to die, right? Surely die. It refers to being doomed to die. What did I tell you guys in week one? This is a sentence that's passed down, a death sentence. It's it. Your body, yourself that is made for eternity, made with a capacity for eternity, ain't going to get it. It's going to die, okay? This is a death sentence that is passed down on Adam and Eve. And it happens when they are uh, and it happens when they are driven from the garden and from the tree of life. Okay? Why would God not want them to have access to the tree of life? Back to Babel. Because he doesn't want them, no matter how cool it looks, in their disorder, living on in that disorder forever. 
It's literally an act of mercy and of grace. So what's the big deal? Adam and Eve have taken this pathway uh, of order uh, on themselves. They are doing their own thing. And they have their own wisdom now that they want to operate this in. Again, archetype for all of humanity. It continues to flow in. They have become, uh, they have become like God and yet fallen very short of who God is. Okay, But their objective is to set themselves up as rivals. So theologians call this time the fall. And it's an interesting thing because we'd have to ask the question, fall from what? Fall from what? We might answer the question, this is a fall from grace. Maybe uh, Augustine is the first to create the idea that it, was, that it was a fall from perfection. But here I want to challenge you with why this isn't right. You remember in week one and week two, I told you that Adam and Eve are lifelong learners. Um, we have a very interesting view of, uh, of getting things wrong and sin, and, we, and we've got to modify it, and we've got to work through it. So what would have happened if Adam was in the garden and Eve was being lied to, deceived by the serpent, and she looks back to Adam and says, let's eat from this, and Adam says, no, that's not God's order. That's not the way it should be. Would Eve be guilty of a sin at that point? The answer is no. She's learning just the same as you and I are. And this is exactly what James talks about in his epistle, where, and what God told Cain when he is tempted to kill his brother, sin is always abounding and crouching at our doors, right? And what are we supposed to do? Overcome it. Overcome it. We're supposed to say no to that thing that is pushing against us. Eve could have said, it looks beautiful, it looks great, and then the response could have been, but it's not God's way. The order's messed up. We would have never had a problem because in the garden, the learning process was all a part of God's plan. The learning process is still a part of God's plan. That's what we call sanctification. We learn every day more and more what it looks like to be like Jesus. This is, uh, this is important, and the reason I bring it up is because we need to quit thinking that um, uh, we need to quit our obsession with the idea of perfection. We've got multiple weird views of perfection, and we need to look more along the lines, as hard as it is for me in this, to look towards the line of the process of looking more like Jesus. I know that he is perfect, but every day we take a step further and further and further closer to Jesus. Amen? That's what we're supposed to do. And when we do this, we should praise each other or encourage one another in this journey. How many of you are perfect? How many of you, yep, that's what I thought. Dylan, get out. How many of you are perfect? How many of you are striving, though, to look more like Jesus? Yes, you're striving to look more like Jesus. If you did one thing that looked like Jesus today, would that make you perfect? No, it just means you did one thing that looked like Jesus today, and you keep striving for it, right? We're, we're continuing to push on into this idea. In the garden, Adam and Eve are learners, right? And they're growing inside of all of these things, but they could have said no, they didn't say no. We have the opportunity now to say no, and oftentimes we don't say no. 
But what are we saying no to? God's order. Over and over and over. We're saying no to God's order. So what did we fall from? I hate the word fall. What we did was we ran away like the prodigal son. Oh, there's Adam and Eve being an archetype again, right? We ran away from the father's house. We said we can do it our own way. And this happens over and over and over in Scripture. The reason why I connect those archetypes with many of the Old Testament stories, including Babel and the flood, is because in some sense, we've given far too much attention to the stories to tell us something that the stories never intended to tell us. We're obsessed. Worldwide flood, localized flood. What was the color of the water? We're dinosaurs on the ark. That would suck. Anyway, right? What, what is going on, right? In all of these stories, what's going on? I think we're asking questions no one asked. And we're missing the idea that has been told to us. You guys broke the order and God is resetting it. Get on the boat. Does that make sense? Does that make sense? This is the call for all of us. So God putting Adam and Eve uh, out of the garden effectively is saying, uh, okay, fine, order it yourself. It's giving the prodigal son his inheritance and sending him out. And so they call on the name of the Lord later um, when they're faced with their own brokenness and inability. This is where repentance comes in. What is repentance in its right way? It's turning around and going the opposite direction, going God's way. It's following his order and not your own. Do you guys get a better sense of what repentance is? This is why repentance is not just you getting actions right. This is why Jesus talks about your mind and your heart when it comes to your love for your brother or with lust or whatever it is. Because it's not about just checking off the action. The issue is, have you really set your life in motion in a new order for God's kingdom? Have you finally said, I can't get it right myself? That's repentance, guys. That's what it means to turn this ship around. That's what it was for the prodigal son. That's what it should have been for Cain when he killed his brother Abel. That's what it, that's what it is in all of these different pieces. So, what I'm, what I'm going to do next week um, is we're going, to, we're going to delve into a couple of passages uh, which will briefly touch on archetypes in the beginning. And we'll talk about uh, Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Corinthians 11. We're going to see how Adam and Eve are literal people, but also this really important figure for, for what's going wrong in us. So we're going to talk about that. But I'm also going to dabble in, into some of the controversies of this, this fall of Genesis, okay? I want to dabble into some of the controversies because I do want us to, I do want us to at least know the arguments and then understand how we come back from them. Because sometimes, I know this is really interesting what I'm about to say, but sometimes the answer to the skeptic is to not argue the mess they're arguing. It's to lead them back to what was actually being spoken versus what everybody tells you was spoken. 
So if we're talking about the flood, what should we do? Well, we should get them back on the right page before we start addressing the issue. Otherwise, here's what you do. You're just jumping in the muck with them, right? And you're throwing punches about stuff God wasn't talking about, okay? But we're going to get into some controversy. One of the controversies that we, we want to uh, touch on next week is how old people lived in this time. Isn't it fascinating that like, people were like hundreds of years old? Isn't that fascinating? I think there's a good explanation for what you're reading there, okay? Second one, what about Nephilim? Have you ever heard of these? What about Nephilim? What the heck is that? Well, we get to talk about it. What does the Bible mean when it says the sons of God had relations with the daughters of men? What, what, what's that? Is this angel people? What's going on here, right? What's going on? We're going to deal with a couple of those controversies. We're doing so because these serve as big points for arguments, big points where people go uh, wrong. There's another thing that I'm going to deal with because I got a lot of questions and a lot of, uh, a lot of thoughts about this concept of being created for the capacity of eternal, eternity, but not being eternal. And I'm going to dabble into... I know this is awesome for a Genesis series. I'm going to dabble into some views on hell. Because I figure it's just fun to do, right? <laughs> and all of you guys should be scared to death of hell. Because you might get, no, anyway, <laughs> okay. So we, we want to talk about it because we want to understand it. Because that's also another point of contention, okay? So we're going to deal with these controversies. We're going to talk a little bit about hell. We're not going to probably do the hell thing next week because it's very challenging. But we're going to talk about these ideas. And then what we'll do is we'll, we'll start to wrap this whole man and disorder thing up uh, into a nice little bow. And then we will get ready for Christmas 